it's kind of a pretentious stretch to refer to your great great grandfather or a grandmother that way. You know, okay, my great grandfather. That that kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit. But once you start throwing in the extra great, um, you know, people don't have them in ordinary conversations. And most people, I suspect, a lot of people don't know anything about great great grandparents. Welcome to Relative Strangers a podcast apparently all about pretentiousness and great-great-grandparents. Specifically, one pair of great-great-grandparents born in New York City in the 1820s that I share with about 450 relatives who are basically strangers to me and to one another. They're relatives, but they're mostly strangers. My name is Taylor Molly, and I'm a poet, educator, and amateur genealogist. And less than two years ago, I thought it might be fun and easy to locate and contact all the living descendants of John Taylor Johnston and Francis Collis and convince them to gather together, first on Zoom last year and then in person next year. It turns out I was only half right, because although it has been great fun finding all these new cousins and adding them to my descendancy chart, it has not been easy. This podcast is all about the challenges I faced trying to convince distant cousins, the youngest of whom are currently fifth cousins, that we should all gather in person in June of 2024. And it's about privilege, inheritance, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, adoption, bad blood, and DNA. To catch you up, our original plan to meet up at a secret location in the Adirondack Mountains was canceled when some cousins discovered and disapproved of this very podcast. In this episode, I have a delightful conversation with my third cousin, Robert Whitman Easton, whom I have never met in person, about a possible replacement plan to occur where our roots lie, here in New York City. Cousin Robert Whitman Easton, welcome. First, let me acknowledge the recent loss of your sister, Pat, who sent me the silver serving spoon that I use to eat my cereal with in two or three unholy bites. You are now the last of your three siblings left alive, and I imagine that brings up some feelings. Like you, I also have a brother and two sisters uh, who are twins, and for the moment we are all alive but i would be devastated if one of them dies before me which is to say welcome and how are you doing i'm doing fine thank you i'm the youngest of the four of us by about Uh, 10 years right by, by about 10 years in doing the family chart i get really good at looking at dates and lifespans if the person is dead and going oh that's some you know obviously that's a baby who died in infancy Ooh, that looks like a childhood disease. Ooh, they died as a teenager. That looks like a tragic accident. Ooh, they died in their early 20s in the, in the 2000 and teens. That's probably an overdose. I can also look at families and spot like, oh, there was probably a miscarriage between you know this person and that person. What's the, what's, why, why are you so much younger than your three siblings? I think there was some difficulty between my mother and father, and I suspect that my mom thought maybe having another baby around would 
keep my father around a little bit longer. She did confess to me once I was supposed to be twins so that I'd have somebody to play with, but um, it didn't work. I was born in 1945. Um, they separated in 1947, and that was the end of that. You and I are technically of the same generation, although you are 20 years my senior, having been born, as you said, in 1945 to my 1965. That means our great-grandmothers were sisters. So on the descendancy chart that I created for the family, you and I both inhabit the fourth ring out from the bullseye, which I mentioned in the last episode of this podcast, is the yellow ring. That means your mother and my father were second cousins. Do you think they ever met? I don't think so. Um, we we didn't have a whole lot to do with, with um, that side of the family, unless it was around my grandmother who lived in Long Island. But of course, even your grandmother is not doesn't get to my side of the family did the name molly mean anything to you before i started pestering you last year to convince you that we were third cousins uh no not familiar at all okay that means um so your grandmother ethel and my grandfather were first cousins and they probably knew each other even though once again ethel was born in 1877 and my grandfather was the baby of the grandchildren of john taylor johnson and francis he was born in 1899 so our grandparents were first cousins and they probably would have met because there weren't so many people at the turn of the century that century Um, So they were more likely to get together for family gatherings. So just to put our relationship in context, I'd like everyone who's listening to imagine a first cousin of yours. No matter how close you may have been to any of your first cousins, it's kind of amazing to think that your grandchildren, one of your grandchildren and one of hers, would still be in contact over a hundred years after you were born. So... Yay us for being in contact. Your grandmother, Ethel, and my grandfather, Harry, are probably uh, smiling. I've heard older cousins on my side of the family say that they felt slighted because they were not DeForests. Do you know of any sort of bad blood or looking down on the rest of the family? Or is it all like invented from my side of the family. Never heard anything about it, but then again, I hardly knew your side of the family existed, so I'm not sure how I would have heard any of that. Right. No, I was I was thinking in terms of um, my grandmother, Ethel, and her sister, Frances, and the two boys, Johnston and Harry. Th- there was a little, um, I remember my mom talking about the fact that the boys, um, definitely outplayed the girls in terms of the uh, the settlements of the will. I mean, there was some there was some heartburn about that. I mean, there was a lot of real estate involved in New Jersey. And it um, all went to the boys? It all went to the boys. Let's talk about the Metropolitan Museum of Art because in 1876, they gave out the what I think might have been the first 
uh, fellowship in perpetuity, which is not only lifetime membership, but a lifetime membership that you can pass on to your descendants. And you have one of those. Tell me how it came into your existence. It was something I was unaware of growing up. I didn't really know that there was a specific membership category like that. And I was also had been on my own, a member of the Metropolitan for a while, probably of extremely low level, you know, not having to pay too much, but wanting to be able to go there from time to time. Where did you grow up? Uh, Connecticut. Okay. Riverside. So you were taken to the Met as a kid. Oh, yeah. Were you were you made to stand in front of the stone um, slab and say and pointed up at John Taylor Johnston, whose name appears first? I don't know whether I was made to, but it, it, it was pointed out more than once or twice. Um, and it was with some shy embarrassment that I pointed it out to the woman who was to become my wife. I said, these are my people, I think is what I said. <laughs> but how did you find, how did you find out that, that your mother, Emily, had, had was in possession of one of these FLPs? Well... I was trying to figure out a way to get a ticket to the King Tut exhibit. In 1978, when New York City lost its mind. They were almost impossible to get. So I wrote to the Metropolitan Development Office and said, by any chance, did my mother have, um, and she had just died. Right. She died in 1978. Anyway, so I wrote to the the Development Office and said, um, you know, is it possible that, you know, that this that she had this fellowship in perpetuity. And they wrote back and said, well, yes, in fact, she did. Um, I said, well, I'm an executor of her will. And I sent them all that paperwork. And they sent me a very nice, you know, hand calligraphed um, membership card. It's not gold. It's not like a gold membership card. Well, it's plastic now, but yeah. (laughs) In my mind, it's in my mind, it's gold. Now, because you are a fellow in perpetuity at the Met, I asked you to contact the Met to see whether they would like to host a little rooftop cocktail reception for all the descendants of John Taylor Johnson, the relative strangers, next June in 2024 when we gather. You haven't gotten a response yet, have you? No response, but I didn't. I just used their standard entry form. No family connections. Um, I just said we were trying to host a reception for uh, John Taylor Johnston, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. No, there's I've I've been that guy. You're just filling out a web query like, hey, can we rent, you know, the founder's room? Can we rent the Temple of Dender? Can we rent the, you know, the American wing without having to say the American wing was paid for by my great grandfather. And we deserve I've been that guy. And it doesn't it doesn't go well. To be clear, it wasn't my great grandfather who paid for the American wing at the Met. It was actually my great great uncle, Robert Weeks DeForest, who was married to my great-grandmother Frances's older sister, Emily. Remember, Emily was the perfect Marsha Brady of the three Johnston sisters. Their father, John Taylor Johnston, the patriarch of this project, may have been the Metropolitan's first president, but his son-in-law was the fifth and at least as important a figure in the museum's early days. In 
The presenting sponsor of Relative Strangers is FamilyTreeChart.com, which is the company I use to make all my ancestral charts, like the one cousin Robert Whitman Easton calls my reverse family chart, where I can track my direct ancestors back in time, hundreds of years in all 64 different directions, and over a thousand years along a few very specific lines beyond that. It's also where I made the descendancy chart that cousin Robert and I are both a part of. Visit FamilyTreeChart.com and use the promo code METROPOLITAN to get 10% off your first order. FamilyTreeChart.com Because any tree can wither if you do not tend to its roots. That is still not their official tagline yet. My name is Taylor Molly, and let's return to my conversation with Cousin Robert on Relative Strangers. That guy who wrote me from the membership office has a little slideshow about all of the DeForest and Johnston um, items that the museum still has. And I, I said in my response to him, like, hey, could you come and maybe give your slideshow to the family or at least uh, raise, a, raise a glass of champagne? Oh, yeah. I've got a couple of items they might want. I, then, then you know what? Let's mention that in our in in the response. What do you what do you have? What what family items do you have that they might want? I have two Chinese import metal piece ceramics. You know, usually there were a set of five or six. I have two of them. They're kind of tall. They have little gold lines on the top. They're not in very good shape. The thing that makes them interesting is they have John Taylor Johnston's name written underneath on the bottom, stuck on paper. So, you know, I can't just send them to a flea market. I got to do something with them. No, you got to. You know, and I have a couple of other antiques actually that I'm hoping to send to auction fairly soon because they're taking up more space than they deserve. We're trying to do the Swedish death cleaning routine just a little bit. Yeah, my wife Rachel often says, "Oh, go put that down in the storage unit." I'm like, "Why?" So that our children can throw it away after we die. Exactly. Uh, Just a curious aside. You know that Frank Lloyd Wright designed houses that did not have basements or attics or garages. He invented the carport so that you wouldn't have places to store the stuff that you weren't using, and much of the furniture in his houses were built-ins. Because he didn't want you to have a whole lot of stuff. According to him, he was doing you a favor. Yes, he was. Please, when we moved out of our house in Worcester, Massachusetts in 2001, we had it was a it was a house, two story house with a with a finished attic and a full basement. We had a two car garage that also had an attic, and all of those places were packed full of stuff, and it was. Some of it got sold, some of it got thrown out, some of it went into storage, which was a ridiculous waste of money. Um, should have gotten rid of it then when we had the chance. Well, you know, the cousin who inherited Wawapek when she had to sell it a few years ago was sort of going through everything and found, and, and she said, in one of the attics, we found these trunks. And in the trunks were the ball gowns of Francis Collis from 18, Collis Johnston from like 1870s. So 1870s ball gowns. And she was able to sell them at auction and they're down at some fashion museum in Sao Paulo. 
All right, let me ask you this. When I first contacted you, and which was probably last year or maybe late 2021, and said, uh, I think we're third cousins. What, what was your first response? Did you think I must be, must be some sort of wasp identity, identity thief? I didn't think that initially. You understand that the vast majority of the cousins who I contact were just convinced like that has scam written all over it. Well, it does actually, but <laughs> I mean, especially if it's someone whose you know last name you don't recognize at all. Right. You know, Taylor's not all that unusual as a name. Right. Um, I mean, if I run into someone like in Rhode Island, Taylor Johnston, you know, little alarm bells go off there that says, you know, this person's probably a relative. Right. Um, Have you ever heard about a scholarship at some like Yale or Harvard Divinity School that is only for people who have DeForest in their name? Why, yes, I have. And I don't have DeForest in my name, so I didn't give a hoot. My uncle... Alan Earl Whitman Jr. gave all of his children DeForest as a middle name so that they would qualify for that scholarship. Or at least that was the family story. They they got to somebody got to Yale and you know determined how much the scholarship was worth. I don't know, $75 a year maybe. <laughs> Definitely not worth the effort. I mean, my my brother went to Yale in the 50s roughly. And his tuition was, you know, less than $10,000. Right. If that, yeah. I mean, not even close. Right. So my dad went to Yale and it's the only college he applied to because his grandfather had gone as well. Yeah. Legacy admissions, uh, back when they were not controversial. Right. Let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of them now. Absolutely. Emily, who of all of her siblings, she was born first and she died last. So she was formidable and she had a long time and, a, and was married 50 years and she had a, a long time to decide what kind of grandmother she was going to be. And she met a dozen of her great grandchildren. And that is what I run into, that the people on your side of the family are so used to considering Robert and Emily at the top of the pyramid of the tree that I here I am saying, uh, you know, that's why I, th th that one of your cousins was the one who said, now, which one are you again? And I said, oh, I'm a descendant of Henry Julian Molly, who you may have called Uncle Harry. Well, this cousin of yours, he did have an Uncle Harry or a great uncle Harry, but it wasn't yep. Molly. And yep. he whispered to his wife, it was a Zoom conversation, and he said, I don't think this person is part of our family. And I was like, sir, you are right, but you are also wrong. You're right yep. in that you have only ever thought of your extended family as starting with Emily and Robert. But Emily had two sisters and two brothers, and I'm extended. It's it's kind of a pretentious stretch to refer to your great-great-grandfather or a grandmother that way. You know, okay, my great-grandfather, that, that kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit, but once you start throwing in the extra great, um, you know, people don't 
have them in ordinary conversations. And most people, I suspect a lot of people, don't know anything about great-great-grandparents. Right. Absolutely. Uh, or if they do, it's only about one of them. Exactly. As your, you know, your reverse chart shows, um, there are a lot of them, but people don't really know about more than one or two of them. I don't know many people who could name all eight of their great-grandparents without checking their notes or calling a, an aunt. Nope, not me. I, I can do it because this is, this is my passion. There's really, the more you think about it, th this, this gathering that, that I'm attempting to do next June, it's, it's ridiculous what we're attempting to do because I, I tried to sort of figure out when the last time the four children got together. I, and I say four because Collis Johnston, who I think is a mystery, he died at age 33 in 18... 66. Actually, it was 1886, but I wasn't wearing my reading glasses. Childless. What does that mean, to be, a, to be a wealthy young man of 33 and to be unmarried and childless in 1866? Does that mean... I think they call them confirmed bachelors in those days. He may have been a confirmed bachelor. So the three Johnston girls and their brother, John Herbert Johnston are the only ones who had kids. They all had four children, except for John Herbert, who just had one, one daughter. Those four, by the time you're a grandparent, family reunions, like all you really care about is bringing together like all of your descendants. And if maybe you have one of your siblings with you, and their children or grandchildren are with you. But, but you know, very quickly, and that's problem, part of what our problem is, is that after 100 years, nobody's interested in, oh, and we ought to invite our first cousins and all of their grandchildren. So the last time the, the, that I ever saw the four Johnston siblings mentioned was in an article in the New York Times about a debutante ball in 1912. And they were all at Marble House. You know, there were plenty of grandchildren there. And so I imagine, here's, Francis lives there in Marble House, but Eva and John Herbert and Emily were all there, some with some of their spouses too. I imagine they walked around Marble House and said, oh, this was the nursery. You know, maybe they had some of their children or grandchildren with them. Oh, I remember this dining room table. Oh, the maids used to hide here. And that in 1912, 120, 111 years ago, is the last time the family, as I am envisioning it, gathered together. Cousin Robert and I ended our conversation fantasizing about if the Metropolitan Museum does rent us a space for a Friday night reception, what should it be? What, what room should it be in? If it's not going to be uh, the courtyard in front of the uh, American wing, uh, definitely the roof. You know, in fact, the roof might even be a better spot. That's just, you know, such an amazing uh, place to, to, to look at New York City. You know, I think this is such a worthy project. 
in so many ways. We, we grow apart from where we came from. I mean, I have a photograph, a collection of photographs uh, that was taken of the family, and I don't know who these people are. And one of my projects has been to try and identify them. So maybe if we get a whole flock of Johnstons together, some people will know who these folks are. Incidentally, a whole flock of Johnstons is actually the title of a book of poems that I have not written yet. Thank you so much, Cousin Robert Whitman Easton, for being my first actual guest here on Relative Strangers. My name is Taylor Molly, and there's so much we didn't talk about, like a certain handed-down locked metal steamer trunk that hasn't been opened in almost 100 years because someone's sentimental father lost the key and didn't want to damage the trunk. We're totally going to break into that sucker next summer with the help of a guy I know, a former curator at the Frick Museum who said, and I quote, even if I can't pick the lock, I have my own blowtorch. We haven't talked about how many cousins have been adopted into this family over the years, sometimes from other sides of the family, where the members just walked away from their children. And what about the Greenwood Cemetery? How have I not yet recorded an episode inside one of the mausoleums there? Yes, there are plenty of skeletons in this family whose bones have yet to speak. Please follow me on Instagram at Relative Strangers Podcast, where I try to be a little less dramatic, and where currently you can see photos of Cousin Robert's Chinese mantle vases with John Taylor Johnston's name on the bottom, as well as a photo from the Mets Cantor Roof Garden Bar, where we hope to be sipping champagne on a Friday evening next June.